I remember one of the documents that was sent, or maybe a couple of them, were describing the church as one holy Catholic and apostolic. Okay, and there was a lot there, but I do remember that as I was reading those documents, mm. I remember it kind of dawning on me on me that, wow, Catholics see the church as being a a visible institution just as real as the nation of Israel was real, just as real as, as the kingdom of David was real. reservation only episode of on the journey with matt and ken and kenny and actually if you don't have a reservation you're still allowed to watch if you do have a reservation hopefully it will be addressed <laughs> by the end of the episode i'm matt swain along with ken hensley and kenny burchard they were both protestant pastors i spent my time behind the counter at family christian stores selling more wild books than you could possibly imagine but you can find us online at chnetwork.org it's a great resource for anyone with questions about the catholic faith uh, you can also, if you're interested in plugging into a community of people with these kinds of questions, go to community.chnetwork.org. And, of course, all this made possible through the generous support of viewers like you, if you want to join that team of donors to help us uh, keep this out there. Uh, to anybody who wants to run across it, you can go to chnetwork.org slash compass and uh, join that party. Gentlemen, how are you? Good. I'm great. Good to see you. Yeah. Good to be back Good to with see you, you guys well. again. Yeah, well, Kenny, I'm going to throw it to you first, because we're doing this series on the church ecclesiology, as it were, and <laughs> uh, where are we going to pick up uh, this week? Yeah, we're going through the catechism, guys, as uh, as we said in the introductory uh, episode, where we're following the flow of the church's ecclesiology through the catechism of the Catholic Church. So today... We're going to be looking at uh, paragraphs 758 to 769. We may or may not read every word of the catechism, but that's kind of where we'll be. And with that in mind, I'm actually just going to kick right off with paragraph 758 because it, it really sets the whole stage for a really good outline of the big ideas that we'll be covering in this episode, guys. So here is what is said about the church in the catechism. Paragraph 758, it says this. We begin our investigation of the church's mystery by meditating on her origin in the Holy Trinity's plan and her progressive realization in history. Let me just pick out a couple of key ideas in that paragraph and then jump into the next one. The, uh, taking them backwards, actually. The progressive realization in history, that is, over the course of history, all the way back from before there was history in the mind of God, the Trinity, in the Holy Trinity's plan, that is, this is something that God, the Trinity, conceived of in his mind, in God's mind, before the world ever began. And then the last word, which was the first one, mystery. In Catholic um, theological terms, mystery is not some curious thing to be solved, like looking for 
clues. Mystery means that were it not for God, this wouldn't be something that we could understand on our own. And so the church's ecclesiology unfolds as God reveals it over time and gives us a glimpse into God's own mind, God's own heart, God's own will and intentions. That's the framework through which we're going to be looking at at the church. So this is a real wide-angle lens today. And in this episode, the way we're going to work through it is to go back and look at the church along a timeline that has four big markers on it. The first marker is that the church is foreshadowed from the beginning of creation. So that you could say this is before there was such a thing as time as we understand it. Second marker is that the church was prepared for in the Old Testament. So we're going to see a little bit of salvation history. And uh, then third marker is instituted by Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. And then the final marker, well, where we'll bring this episode to an end today, is that the ultimate destiny of the church is something that will be realized in what we could call the eschatological future, the end of time. So before time, across time, and then at the end of time, we're going to see the church. So with that in mind, let me let me go to the next paragraph, then I'll share a couple more ideas and toss it to you guys. 759, listen to what it says. The Eternal Father, in accordance with the utterly gratuitous and mysterious design of his wisdom and goodness, created the whole universe and chose to raise up men to share in his own divine life, to which he calls all men in his Son. The Father determined to call together in a holy church those who should believe in Christ. This family of God is gradually formed and takes shape during the stages of human history, in keeping with the Father's plan, in fact, already present in figure at the beginning of the world. This church was prepared in marvelous fashion in the history of the people of Israel and the Old Alliance, established in this last age of the world, and made manifest in the outpouring of the Spirit. It will be brought to glorious completion at the end of time. I'm not going to say a heck of a lot there, except just a couple of ideas. One is, one of the ways to understand what God was doing before time began, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, in conceiving of and planning the church, is to hone in on this language of Son and family uh, as a way of understanding exactly what God was doing in the beginning and and the Trinity. The Trinity, the holy family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, decides before the world ever begins to extend the family and to include in the, in the Trinitarian family humanity in the Son. And so God is starting a family, and this family is comprised of all of the humanity who come to him in his son, Jesus. And this is then, if you will, the church is God's family enterprise, the expansion of God's family. And the last thing I'll say about this before I start talking and toss it to you guys is that if someone were to take out their Bible to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, 
and set that down next to this paragraph we just read in the Catechism, you would find the interpretive lens for that section of Ephesians being interpreted by this section of the Catechism. Here's what Ephesians 1, 4-10 says. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, there's that piece of it, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That is, we become sons through the Son. There's that part of the catechism. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, now here's that word again in the catechism, the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So there you have, before the world began, across time and history, fulfilled in Jesus, and brought about to full eschatological completion at the end of time. That is the starting place for our discussion of the church today. Let me just stop right there and pass it. Let me pass it to Ken, because you're going to really kind of start with this first aspect, the before time began piece of it. Well, I'm kind of glad that you didn't ask us to comment on that because you, what you've done is summarized really well here the entire episode. And so our commentary is what is to come, all right, as we walk through this plan of God. And so to begin then, we see the church foreshadowed, as you said, from the beginning of creation, from before the beginning of creation. The church begins, uh, the catechism teaches us, as a plan born in the Father's heart before time began, before there was ever such a thing as creation. Now, in the series that you and Matt and I did, um, I'm looking at you, Kenny, now, so I don't see Matt. Um, In the series that we did on sanctification, we spent a bit of time asking and attempting to answer this, this pivotal question, why did God create the world? Why did God make us? And you've already touched on that, so this is just an expansion on what you've already said. Well, Given that God existed from all eternity in perfect love, happiness within what we could refer to as the family of the most blessed Trinity, one thing we know, and we we talked about this in that series, one thing we know is that God did not create because he needed something. God did not create because he lacked something uh, that he needed. In fact, as St. Paul tells us um, in Acts chapter 17, that is his words to the Athenians when he was preaching to them, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. So this is the thing that comes to me. Because God needs nothing, the one thing that we can be sure of is that God didn't create us to function as a means to some kind of end that he had in mind for himself. We're not just cogs in a machine. We're not, uh, you, you know, God wants something out here and he creates us as a means to getting to it. No, we can know that God created us as ends in ourselves. We are ends in ourselves. And by the way, I could go off on a big tangent about Calvinism now, which I will not, except to state 
except to simply state that the Calvinist worldview, in a sense, maybe more than in a sense, treats the human race as a means to God's end. Because Calvinists right. will continually say that God's goal in all of creation is to display the full range of his attributes, and therefore he creates certain people to be a display of his grace and others to be a display of his judgment. And the human race becomes a means to God's end. But I'll just leave it at that. We're going to do a whole series on mm -hmm. this at some point in the future. But we are ends in ourselves. In other words, I'll put it this way. God created us because God wanted to share with sons and daughters. There's the family idea. There's the word that you mentioned yes. already. God wanted to share with sons and daughters created in his own image and likeness, the love, the happiness, the life of the blessed Trinity. And, and here then is where the church begins. This is where the church begins. It begins as a plan in the heart of God, the creator, to have his happiness, his love, his life, his joy experienced from all eternity spill over into our lives, or I guess to put it in family terms, to grow a huge family. That's his thing. Yes. And, and seven, paragraph 760 of the Catechism puts it like this. Christians of the first centuries said, the world was created for the sake of the church. God created the world for the sake of communion with his divine life. Again, the world is the means to, to our end. The world is created right. for the sake of the church, not the other way around. The church is the goal of all things. And God permitted such painful upheavals as the angels fall, man's fall into sin, only as occasions, those were the means, as occasions and means for displaying all the power of his arm and the whole measure of his love he wanted to give the world. Okay, any comment before we move on to the uh, second stage in our narrative today? I just want to say that I never had a view of the church even like remotely approaching <laughs> this kind of thing in the world that I came from. Uh, so if anything, I had the view of the church is just kind of like a various assembly of, of Christians. But, uh, you know, the way that it's being talked about here uh, from, you know, Paul's uh, discussion of things in Ephesians uh, to, uh, you know, the idea of yeah. the Christians in the first centuries, that might be, is that is that the shepherd of Hermas? I can't remember exactly where that quote is from, but the, the idea that the world is created for the sake of the church, um, it it would not have been the way that I thought. But, you know, as I think about it, even for a Christian who is Bible only, it fits the picture of what you see in the scriptures better than a lot of the mm -hmm. ecclesiology that, that a lot of us had, because it makes a lot better sense of the, the whole idea of the wedding of the Lamb, right? The church being the bride of Christ, mm -hmm. this, this whole picture of, you know, if God is, you know, preparing us for this glorious thing, that it wouldn't be something that he's like, well... I tried it and it didn't work, but at the end, don't worry, I'm going to fix it all, right? Like there's this there's this preparation through the course of all of salvation history of a bride uh, for this right, right. kind of eternal wedding. And it fits the picture of what scripture actually seems to be saying about God's plan for his people as what one of us, many of us would have said in our former Christian backgrounds as self, you know the Bible being a story of a love story between God and his people, right? In this case, we actually really do mean that there, there is a love story between God and his people, but by his people, we are saying his church, right? His mm -hmm, church. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the word that we like put in that place. It's not merely just like his like people, whoever they are, wherever they may be. No, it's his people in his church. 
Okay, good points, Matt. Uh, first then, we see the church foreshadowed from the very beginning in the mind of God. Second then, we see the church prepared for in the Old Testament, prepared, prepared for in the Old Covenant. Now, there is a ton that could be said here, but since the Catechism in paragraphs 761, 762, I'll, I'll leave those of you who are listening to this to read them on the side. Since these paragraphs summarize very briefly this process by which God prepared throughout the Old Testament for the revelation of his church fully instituted and revealed in the New Testament, I'll do the same and just summarize the ideas. Okay, as you said a few minutes ago, Kenny, what we have in salvation history, that is the history that's related in Scripture, is the story of God fathering a family. In the story of the Old Testament, we see God's family continually expanding out to eventually embrace the entire world. So at the beginning, and this is something we've heard plenty of Catholic biblical theologians talk about, at the beginning, God's family consists of Adam and Eve restored after the fall, or you could say one holy couple. You could describe the church. With Noah, one holy couple expands out and becomes one holy family. Then when you come to Abraham and the covenant God enters into with Abraham, one holy family expands further and we see one holy tribe. We have Abraham and his tribe. Then when you come to Moses and the children of Israel, the 12 tribes, this expands to one holy nation under Israel. And then with David and the covenant uh, that God makes with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find one holy couple, one holy family, one holy tribe, one holy nation expand out to become one holy kingdom. Uh, so through a series of covenants then that God makes with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses and the children of Israel, with the Davidic line, what we see is God fathering a family that is expanding to embrace more and more people, at least potentially. Um, after all, didn't God say to Abram at the beginning in Genesis chapter 12 that he would bless Abraham, he would make Abraham great, he would bless Abraham's descendants, make them like the sand on the seashore, make them like the stars of heaven, and that through his descendants, through his seed, all nations of the earth would be blessed. That, that is the essence of the covenant. Now, God did tell his people, and he told them many times, that if only they would love him and keep his commandments, I'm talking about the old covenant people of Israel, that they would become for him uh, basically a nation of priests. They would become a nation of, of um, missionaries and priests uh, bringing the light of, of the truth of God's existence and God's plan for humanity, bringing that light to the entire world. Um, and, but of course, the story of the Old Testament leads us to understand that they did not love God and they did not keep his commandments. In the end, they were led away into exile in, in Assyria, the northern ten tribes, and Babylon, the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Um, they're led away into exile. And although a few of them come back to the land, it's kind of a pathetic uh, new exodus. It, it, it's certainly not what the prophets are foretelling. We find the prophets during this time, mainly Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, we find them uh, prophesying a new covenant that God will make with his people in the future, through which he will accomplish all of his purposes. 
And uh, for instance, Jeremiah 31 is the classic passage where we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. So here's a prophecy of the new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Throughout the entire Old Testament, what we have is this progressive building of this family of God fulfilled only in the new covenant, though. When the new covenant comes in Christ, is it fulfilled to where God's people truly can become and do become a light to all the nations to extend God's truth and God's glory throughout the world as the waters cover the seas. And this brings us to the new covenant, which is your job, Kenny, to discuss. So let me throw it back to you, unless you have some comment on this, um, on the Old Testament first, Kenny or Matt. Nothing nothing there from me. I'd, if Matt has anything, this is a good place for him to share that, and then, uh, and then I'll dive in. Well, the only thing I was just going to share is that uh, there are plenty of Presbyterians, you know, nodding along with everything you just said, right? This is boilerplate covenant theology i mean this is like right. yeah straight right. out of like i don't know a single person formed in that whole covenant theology tradition as a protestant who wouldn't be like yeah so what's the what's the issue here right i mean this is very very much uh how, right. how these things get Maybe. talked about this you knew scott hahn when he was a calvinist still this is probably exactly he he, he could have yeah. taught everything that we've taught to this point as a calvinist right Right, right. Well, I, I don't think that Scott Hahn became Catholic, and I certainly didn't become Catholic thinking that everything I believed before was wrong. No, this right. is the story of the Old Testament. And um, when it comes to the New Covenant, though, what we're looking at is the beautiful fulfillment of all of this, what couldn't be accomplished under the Old Covenant. And that involves a new Passover, and it involves a new Exodus, the total fulfillment. But you're right, Presbyterians reading this. Now, a lot of Baptists wouldn't because mm -hmm. they have a different kind of view. Um, but covenant mm -hmm. theologians definitely would. I agree. Yeah, and so it shouldn't be any surprise to us then, guys, when we open, for instance, the initial uh, words of the Gospel of Luke, uh, especially the Gospel of Luke, in which Luke ties all this stuff together, Ken, that you just that you just went through um, by telling Theophilus, you know, the recipient and maybe the patron mm -hmm. of his writing, that this is written in order to help him to know that the things he's heard and been taught are all true. And then very shortly into his uh, gospel, he provides a, a genealogy that goes not just back to Abraham, but that goes all the way back to Adam, because Luke, as the gospel writer in particular, wants Gentiles to know. And this is why he has, this is why Luke has so many stories about Jesus going into Gentile places and talking mm -hmm. about Gentiles and almost getting thrown off of a cliff because he said, God loves Gentiles. This is, this is Luke's message to Theophilus, that this is what God's been doing since the beginning. And so he, he does go back to Abraham, but he goes all the way back to Adam, who he calls the son of God, son of God. In, uh, in his genealogy. Luke wants us to know that this thing that's been happening all through history 
is what God has always been up to and that it's being fulfilled or has been fulfilled now in Jesus, which is where you, you tossed it to me, Ken. And the, the idea that we want to camp on right here for a few minutes is that the church was instituted by Jesus, instituted. Now, if I was Pastor Kenny, I, because I was kind of a Pentecostal uh, of a flair in my preaching, I would look out at our congregation and say, everybody say instituted. And they would all say instituted. And then I would say, that's not a dirty word. Well, I probably back then would have said it's a dirty word, but now as a Catholic, I wouldn't. We Catholics fully embrace the idea that in Jesus, the church has been instituted, that it is mm -hmm. an institution of God himself. And so before I read the next couple paragraphs of the catechism, I just want to look at that word for a minute. And it's used in a couple of different ways in the New Testament, a couple of different Greek words. The first word um, is the word katesis, K-T-I-S-I-S, which is translated at least once as institution, but dozens of other times in different ways. For instance, it's used when talking about a creature, some, some creature that's been made. Uh, this word is used. Or creation itself, like the whole plan, all the planets, the universe, uh, the heavens and the earth are talked about using this word. A building, like a physical building made out of uh, material, is this word is used. And then institutions, whether human or divine, governments, etc., this word is also used. And the word connotes that it's something that's been created, that it's been set up to have a particular kind of form and to work in a certain way inside of its own internal operation and workings and in its relationship to other things, that it's not just this sort of nebulous blob of goo that hangs there, but that it has a certain purpose, a certain mm -hmm. telos. It's going somewhere. And then there's another word in the, in the New Testament in which this concept of institution is used, and it's the word tasso. Uh, some people who are Greek nerds might may have heard the word hupotasso, which is the Greek word for submit yourselves, which is two words. Rank is, is that this tasso and hupo under. Rank. So take an echelon, a layer, a specific place under something else. So it has to do with relationality, institution. So in the Septuagint, for instance, it's used, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It says that the priests blowing the trumpets, their job to blow the trumpets, is to be a perpetual institution throughout your generations. But it's also used in Romans 13.1, where Paul talks about authorities that he says have been instituted by God or set up by God. And so the second word, tasso, is used to convey this concept of design and formation and arrangement and to express the idea that something's been put in order. And we see this, don't we? In the pastoral letters, for instance, Paul says that there's a way that one ought to behave himself in the house of God, as though there were a particular order of things, or that gifts were to be um, exercised in a particular order in relationality toward one another. He even says in, uh, in the Corinthian letter that God has instituted first in the church apostles, and he uses 
this word. But then he also says, for instance, to Titus, he says, I left you in Crete or on Crete in order that you may set in order the things that remain. So even within biblical and Catholic ecclesiology, this concept of institution, that there's a particular created order to the church is integral to Catholic ecclesiology. So we fearlessly embrace the word institution. It is not a dirty word. Um, you know, before I read the catechism there, uh, let me share one more thought. And I'm gonna, I'm, I think a good time for some interaction here. I, I don't know if you guys ever did this, but I read books, for instance, by Ernest Loosely, one called When the Church Was Young. And on the cover of this book is a, is a drawing of a little girl. It's like Laura Ingalls running along the hills of Little House on the Prairie with her dress and her hair sort of blowing in the wind. It's Loosely's kind of ecclesiology. The church is really just this free-spirited um, thing that it just goes running wherever it wants to. It's just having this happy and playful life out on the hills and we shouldn't add so much structure and institution to things. because, And that that's a, a very popular ecclesial model in many um, uh, sectors of Protestant evangelicalism uh, that, that sort of push against this idea of institution that's so prevalent in the New Testament. I'm not sure. You know, like Matt, let me start with you uh, as a way to toss it back before I read the catechism and, and your experience there. Man, there's so much to be said. <laughs> I, I, this, this is a problem when you start diving into the catechism and it's every single paragraph that we've read has like 30 references underneath it to church documents you know as i'm as i'm thinking of you discussing this idea of creation and institution and, and how it's um used for so many things that we can see and feel and touch and hear and smell um i think a lot of us who came from an invisible church ecclesiology uh, mm -hmm. either explicitly or implicitly were under some kind of impression, at least I was, that how things operated in the spiritual realm with the body of Christ was according to a completely different set of principles and order than what was going on right. in the world in front of us. Right. And yet, and yet when I go back through, and this goes back to the idea of like the story in the scripture matching what it is that we're reading here, when Jesus tells us what the church is and how it's set up and how it's instituted and what it's going to be like, like everything that he uses to explain it is some example from the natural created world, something else that has been instituted also by him, like marriage or like right. a garden or like a vine or something like a building that people build, like every single time he tries to tell us what this is he uses an example of something else that he has made or has given us some kind of ability to make um right let me leave it there because I, otherwise i'll derail this whole thing but yeah, that's <laughs> as good. you're speaking that's there's good. just there's just so many things that are swirling around as you as you bring this up yeah even yeah, that me... familial image go ahead go ahead ken go ahead uh, i was going to say that what this reminds me of is um when that gentleman came to me in my Baptist church and I was a pastor and he said, Ken, he was pastor Ken, they've sent me this, all this material. I, you know, would you read it? And I, I remember one of the documents that was sent, or maybe a couple of them were describing the church as one holy Catholic and apostolic. Okay. And there was a lot there, but I do remember that as I was reading those documents, mm. I remember it kind of dawning on me, on me that 
wow, Catholics see the church as being a, a visible institution just as real as the nation of Israel was real, just as real as, as the kingdom of David was real. You know, because I was so wed or, or just so used to this idea that the gospel message goes out from Jesus and the apostles. And basically, individuals who believe it just gather together in little clusters and then they elect someone to be their teacher, sort of, because you have to have something going on. I mean, you have to have some organization. And and it's kind of okay that there are these Baptist organizations scattered around the world, uh, 20 or 30 different kinds of Baptists that are not even connected with one another. And then these Presbyterian groups and these Episcopal groups and Nazarene and Pentecostal and Lutheran and Bre on and on, and that it was sort of okay because all the church was, was these individuals responding to this message and uh, forming little group groups together. And I'm reading those documents. I remember they came from, in fact, Patrick Madrid was the guy that had written or, or no, had, had sent these documents. But I'm reading these documents that are describing the church as something concrete, something real, an institution just as, um, just as, I don't want to say just as structured, but just as concrete as the Supreme Court or a, or a company or or the king, kingdom of Israel, and being kind of, kind of shocked by it. And so anyway, I kind of hear the seeds of this as you talk about these words, um, you yeah. know, uh, catesis and tasso, and this word institution. But you go ahead because and, and expand yeah. on it. But that's what hit me. Yeah, if I could and just that, throw in one other thing, like as you're saying this, I hope we get into this later on. But fundamentally, there this this gives a window into some a major difference between Protestantism and Catholicism is that Protestants have like a dialectical way of thinking about the world and Catholics have an analogical way of thinking about the yes. world. Like Catholics have like this way of seeing like everything we have is like an analogy to the, to the spiritual life and Protestants are much more mm -hmm. like, like how do we dissect this? What's your opinion? Well, I think my opinion is reasons add in this direction and that direction. Whereas Catholics are like, well, oh. if it's like a marriage, then it's like a marriage and probably some other ways that we haven't thought about yet. Matt, I really like this um, this analogical dialectic, and I, I think analogical is going to be really helpful. Uh, this phrase, "It's like, it's like," um, and here's what happens in the next four paragraphs of the Catechism: uh, we get the, this analogy, this analogous connection to what the Church is to some language that Jesus begins using when he inaugurates the church. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not going to read all four paragraphs, but I'm going to read a little bit from each paragraph. So if you have a catechism, you can read along. Find your way down in paragraphs 763 to the sentence that says this, The Lord Jesus inaugurated his church by preaching the good news. And uh, euangelion, preaching the good news. And what was that? That the kingdom of heaven had come, or that he was inaugurating the reign of God in the world through his own life and through his own work. So when you say analogous, the word that Jesus chooses and the way in which Jesus goes about doing everything is a kingdom. There's a kingdom happening here. Now, a kingdom is not some nebulous blob of goo that ha doesn't have structure, that doesn't have intentionality, that doesn't have rank, hierarchy, laws, mm -hmm. ways of doing things in a particular way. And so Jesus inaugurates um, the kingdom of God by preaching 
that it's fulfilled in him. That's 763. 764 then says this, this kingdom shines out before men in the world, in the works and in the presence of Christ to begin with. You know, Jesus is the way in which the reign of God comes into the world. But then Jesus begins sharing that, spreading that to the rest of humanity through the instrument of the kingdom, the realm of the reign mm -hmm. of the kingdom, which is the ecclesia, the church, these assembled sons and daughters from every kindred, tribe, and tongue who are gathered together into the family of God, who rank themselves under Jesus and sometimes in relation to one another in order to carry out the, the plans of God and his kingdom work in the world. So that's the big idea in, in 764. And then in 765, this is kind of the last idea seeping into this one, it says, the Lord Jesus endowed his community with a structure that will remain until the kingdom is fully achieved. So the kingdom is inaugurated through the life and ministry and work of Jesus and the inauguration of the church. And it is working itself out over time through the church in the world until this idealized future time, which is called the fully achieved kingdom here in the catechism. So, so the analogy, you know, um, uh, Matt, to tie into what you shared is uh, the church is a kingdom and we, it's light. It's this analogy, church and kingdom, ecclesia and kingdom. These two have an analogous relationship. So it should be impossible, especially inside of a Catholic ecclesiology, to come up with this unstructured, sort of free-spirited, nebulous, everyone can kind of make up their own thing, version of ecclesiology, which you don't see anywhere, you know, through, through this matrix of understanding what Jesus is doing in the world. And then the final, um, the final paragraph, and I'll just look at the, the last sentence of that, which is really interesting. It says in paragraph 66, as Eve was formed, now this is this language of creation, as Eve was formed from the sleeping Adam's side, so the church was born from the pierced heart of Christ hanging dead on the cross. And this is the first creation, which falls, and the new creation, which is raised up, in which we find the church, which is Jesus and created from the side of Jesus, the pure side of Jesus, his church, who are spoken of as being in a one flesh relationship. So all of this together, guys, strikes me. It strikes me, this Catholic ecclesiology of an intentionally conceived of church, which over time begins to form through all of these human families that you pointed out, Ken, which find their fulfillment in Jesus and through Jesus himself, as he inaugurates the kingdom in this church and through this church, it shouldn't surprise us when we find that this is a structured, created, formed, uh, intentional, organized kind of thing, mm -hmm. just like all of creation is. We're going to come later on to talking more about hierarchy and about all that. But I appreciate the fact that in paragraph 765, 
a, a glimpse of what lies ahead is, is given to us. The Lord Jesus endowed his community with a structure that will remain until the kingdom is fully achieved. Before all else, there is the choice of the 12 with Peter as their mm-hmm. head. But it goes on and on and on. It begins to elaborate that structure. And we'll come to that later, mm-hmm. so I won't say anything more about it. But there it is. Um, Matt, you have something to say before we move forward? Uh, yeah, I mean, just a little bit back to the analogical versus dialectical thing. I mean, again, without getting into the weeds, everything that you're hearing here is like the church is using this language of analogy. Using God is using things that he is already showing to us to show us what the church is, right? Uh, whereas, you know, sort of the the dialectical Protestant worlds that we came from, especially if you came from a visible church, but even as, most especially if you came from sort of an idea that the world world was bad and God is good, right? This world is not my home. How many of us have heard that, right, in sermons? Like, I'm just a pilgrim on a journey here, you know, stranger in a strange land. This world is not my home. Like, uh, it, you kind of get this sort of opposition to, like, all these images and ideas that, you know, that there are, there are obstacles to understanding this true spiritual reality that's beyond uh, beyond all of it. And we'll never be home here until we are home there, right? Whereas in the Catholic idea, idea, if Christ has established a kingdom on earth, uh, we don't have a fully realized home, but we have a little bit of a home here, right? If yes. God made this place for us yes. and he instituted this church for us, then he has a home for us until we get to the full realization of that and the beatific vision. Uh, we do yeah. have something of a home here. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The world was created for the church, right? We do have something of a home here. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important yeah. more than More than ever, more than ever, guys— I think of the church as heaven on earth. I really do. Especially when we worship together, when we pray together, and we celebrate the sacramental uh, worship that we have in the Mass. It really is where heaven and earth overlap. And so, yeah, to your point, Matt, we, we shouldn't be surprised when we understand that the church instituted by Jesus has this form, this visible structure, this organized sense about it, such as we find throughout all of creation. And God, God's continuing to be the way he is, even with the institution of the church. Enough there, Ken. Back okay, to you. Um, okay, so we've looked at the church so far today as something, as a plan, a born in the heart of the Father before time began. We've looked at the church as prepared for in the Old Testament. We've looked at the church now instituted, created by Jesus in the New Testament. And now we're going to look at the church as revealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, when I read that, the church revealed by the Holy Spirit, I take this in two two different ways. First of all, the church is revealed in history by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The church was revealed in history. That is Acts chapter 2. And... Okay, so it's on the day of the Feast of Pentecost when the city of Jerusalem is just crammed with millions of Jews that have traveled from every end of the Roman Empire, really, Mm -hmm. to celebrate this feast, which was all about uh, the the ingathering of the first fruits of the harvest. And it's at that moment that the Holy Spirit comes upon the 112, I mean, 120 disciples gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit falls on them and conquers them. They come out into the crowd. Peter stands up and he preaches the very first sermon of Christian history, really. And the crowd is cut to the heart and responds, what must we do? And of course, Peter says to them, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, this, this in history is the Holy Spirit revealing the church, the church being launched. And in paragraph 767 and 768, this is what we read. When the work the Father, which the Father gave the Son to do on earth was accomplished, the Holy Spirit was sent on the day of Pentecost in order that he might continually sanctify his church. Then the church was openly displayed to the crowds and the spread of the gospel among the nations through preaching was begun. As this convocation of all men, I mean, as the convocation of all men for salvation, the church in her very nature is missionary, sent by Christ to all the nations to make disciples of them. And then just a bit more so that she can fulfill her mission. And we'll be coming back to this later. We just mentioned the structure of the church mm -hmm. as a real institution that's going to be filled out later on. But in order to fulfill her mission, the catechism gives us the hint now. The Holy Spirit bestows upon the church varied hierarchic and charismatic gifts, and in this way directs her. Henceforward, the church, endowed with the gifts of her founder and faithfully observing this pre, uh, his precepts of charity, humility, and self-denial, receives the mission of proclaiming and establishing among all peoples the kingdom of Christ. I, I love that. You said a few minutes ago, Kenny, that the church is the kingdom. And I love what it says here, the mission of proclaiming and establishing in this world. That's back to Matt, what you just said that we do have a home here. In some ways we have a home. Establishing among all peoples the kingdom of Christ and of God. Mm -hmm. And she is on earth, the seed and the beginning of that kingdom. This, your point, Matt, a second ago, this is also, this also makes sense of why the Catholic Church would want through history to build beautiful churches to the glory of yes. God, cathedrals, the, the amazing Gothic cathedrals you go into, you know, to the glory of God, because there is a kingdom that has been established on earth, an outpost here on earth. Whereas when you go to the other extreme in terms of ecclesiology and you say, no, 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 the church is nothing more than a gathering of believers. You tend to want to start meeting in warehouses and uh, just meeting in a coffee shop or a warehouse or, you know, th there's no desire to build a beautiful church as an offering to God. Because again, like you said, Matt, this world is not our home in, an, in a radicalized sense. We have nothing here. We're simply passing through. Okay. Anyway, this is the actual revelation of the church by the Holy Spirit is Acts chapter two, the day of Pentecost, when the church is established by the Holy Spirit. But I think when I think of the church being revealed by the Spirit, I also think back to your opening words, Kenny, about Paul and the idea of the mystery, because I also think of those statements that Paul makes, especially in his letter to the Ephesians, where he talks about how the church comprised now of both Jew and Gentile, with no distinction be, being made between them, he describes it as a mystery. And he describes right. this as a mystery that was hidden in the mind of God and is only revealed now by the Holy Spirit. And I, I think that what he's getting at there as a Pharisee himself and as a Jew is that if you read the Old Testament prophecies of the future, that is what will happen when the new covenant is established, you certainly get the impression 
that when the Mes when the messianic kingdom comes, when the Messiah arrives, the son of David is going to sit on a throne in the city of Jerusalem. The temple is going to be fully functioning. The Levites are going to be offering morning and evening sacrifices, blood sacrifices, day in and day out throughout this whole millennial kingdom. And the temple will be the center of activities. And the Gentile nations are going to stream into Jerusalem to learn from the Jews. Now, this, this is what the Jews expected at the time when Jesus came. Um, this is what Paul, as a Jew and as a Pharisee, expected. And yet, this is not what happened. <laughs> Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God is not something that you will see established here or there. The kingdom of God is here now with me, is among you. And then he goes on to die, to be raised from the dead, to be seated at the right hand of God, all authority in heaven and on earth having been given to him, to pour out his spirit and establish this kingdom fully, visibly, functioning hierarchically on earth and to see it begin to expand. And this revelation comes to Paul and he says, this is a mystery. This was hidden from ages past, but it's now been revealed that in the church, God has called all people, Jews and Gentiles, male, female, slave, free bond, all together as one. And it's here totally radical. Now, if we were doing a series on eschatology, we could really launch off here. We'll save that for later too. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. the, but anyway, this is what I this is what comes to my mind when I read that section on the church being revealed by the Holy Spirit. And you know, it really is a good place since you brought up the word eschatology, we can actually end with that idea. We can we can bring this to its eschatological conclusion, right? With the, the next and final section of the catechism, because the catechism wants to take us there. It wants us to get there in our ecclesiology. And uh, it's this, the language of the church perfected in glory. Catholic ecclesiology comes to its crescendo where the story of scripture comes to its crescendo, its teleological destination, if you will. It's its, its <clears throat> final course, its landing place. Um, at the end of the age, when time is no more. And the Catechism does this with that idea, 769. The church will receive its perfection only in the glory of heaven. Oh my gosh, I, I, I need to write that down on just about everything I can get my hands on and take it with me every time I get into a discussion with people about how tough it is in the church right now and how terrible things are and how people are doing this and that and the other. And sure. The church will receive its perfection only in the glory of heaven. <laughs> Man, do we need that right now. At the time of Christ's yes. glorious return. What does that mean? Well, it's a little phrase I've been using for years, even before I was Catholic. Church is hard. Church is hard. And in that sense, that is exactly what the catechism is telling us right now. For now, in the present state of things, church is really hard. Until that day, says the catechism, the church progresses on her pilgrimage amidst this world's persecutions and God's consolations. Here below, she knows that she is in exile from the Lord and longs for the full coming of the kingdom, when she will be united in glory with her king, the church, and throughout her world, will not 
throughout her, uh, sorry, let me start that again. The church and through her, the world will not be perfected in glory without great trials. Only then will all the just from the time of Adam, from Abel, the just one to the last of the elect, be gathered together into the universal church in the Father's presence. Uh, Far from being a parenthetical statement in the middle of some bigger plan that God has and that he's working on, the Catholic Church's ecclesiology embraces the church as the big thing that God has always been up to, is up to right now, and will be up to forever. So we can end where we began, that God's purpose from the very beginning was to start a family, an ecclesial family, and that that family would share in the nature of the Trinity and the activity Mm -hmm. of the Trinity, such that we could be said to be partakers of the divine nature as God's people. This plan and purpose has emerged and unfolded over time through salvation history and through the church age. And this plan and purpose will find its ultimate fulfillment in the eschatological future. And so let me read what that looks like in a snapshot in the last book of the Bible, Mm -hmm. the first 11 verses of the second to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21, 1 through 11. What is the future of the church? It says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without price from the fountain of the water of life. He who conquers shall live, shall have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls, full of the seven last plagues, and spoke with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the Spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. This is the future of the church. Its eschatological future is a the picture of the first part of the story of the Bible, uh, a man and a woman in a garden. The Bible ends with bride and bridegroom in a city, a beautiful, big, shiny city. 
And that's the future of the church. You know, since this is called On the Journey, um, rather than <laughs> simply just stating this is what the Catholic Church teaches about what the Catholic Church is, I find it helpful to look back and say, well, how's that, how's that different from, from what I used to believe? Because I, in, you know, of course, being a person who, you know, this is the most important book of my life, right? I would affirm everything that you say. I wouldn't necessarily know what it means or, or how to do it. But without, without everything that we just discussed about what the church is, uh, what I kind of felt left with is, all right, Matt, it's, you, it's your responsibility to, to maintain your relationship with Christ. And you need to find a community of believers, a worshiping community, that helps you do this as good as possible, right? <laughs> That's a lot of a lot of pressure, man. Yeah, uh, you do it, man. Whereas, right? Like you go find you go find where they're teaching this right. You go find where they're building you up the most. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas this is this is like a it's a marriage, right? And marriages are are hard and weird. Families are hard and weird but they're families, right? There's something kind of eternal and kind of like bonded about them. And it fits the pattern of how God has worked with his people leading up to the incarnation as a family, mm -hmm. um, as a, as a group of people who, let's just say, if you're going through the wilderness in Israel, you don't look around and be like, man, these people are terrible. I'm going to go follow God on my own. And you set up at uh, four o'clock in the morning, the next morning, and you start your way to the promised land all you by yourself what do you think is going to happen to you <laughs> what do you think is going right. to happen to you yeah. right um th right. this is meant to be a god god meant to not pick each person out and silo them off but to have a people to have a people right um <clears throat> and this fits it, that it, picture my final thought here you know jumping off from there we can give ken the last word is that what you just shared reminds me of what our friend uh, Doug Beaumont says regarding, you know, Catholic ecclesiology, and that is that God doesn't command us to go and look for a really good church and attach ourselves, you know, go, go church hunting and find a church, or to even start our own churches. Rather, God calls us to the church that he founded, and we join ourselves to that church, and that is the church that teaches us, and that is the church founded by Jesus himself, in which we we join ourselves and and walk in and with and through that church until the end of our lives and into the future. Okay, and I guess my my final word will focus on. Um, I liked how you said there, Kenny, near the end. You said the church is God's big thing, the big thing God's doing, because that takes me back to the beginning again, where I made the point that we are not. We are not created to be a means to some end that God has mm -hmm. in mind for himself. You go back to the beginning of the Bible, and God creates the world for Adam and Eve. And then he says, let right. us make man in our image and our likeness to be sons and daughters, and they will, be, uh, they will have responsibility and care for the world. They will have dominion over the world. And that's the, how the Bible begins. And then you go to the end of the Bible and you have this fulfilled, you know, the family of God fulfilled. You know, this is the big thing. The, the, the church mm -hmm. is the big thing that, that all of creation was made for. That's the thing that's jumping out to me here. And I'll, I'll just add that to what you two said, because I agree with what you're saying as well. This is the big thing. This is what God wants. This is what God's doing. Amen. All Amen. Right. Well, we'll have to pick it back up from there. 
next time around. We've only covered just a handful of paragraphs at the beginning of what the Catechism has to say about the Church. So uh, I encourage you to go check it out. It's in the, I think we started today around paragraph, what was it, 758? Um, you know, if you want to go back and review some of those and just read this section, and uh, we'll pick it up again <laughs> next time around, I believe, what is it, 769? So, no, I'm take that back, 7, 770, uh, I believe, is where we're going to pick it back up. So if you like to follow along with such things, then uh, I'd encourage you to do so. Uh, you can go to chnetwork.org uh, to find previous episodes in uh, this or any other series that we've done, and also lots of other great stories as well, chnetwork.org. Uh, you can join the online community that we have, uh, created especially uh, for people who are interested in the Catholic faith or maybe new to the Catholic faith. That's community.chnetwork.org. And again, if you want to make a gift to help us continue to do these kinds of things, uh, by all means, go to chnetwork.org compass, and we'd love for you to sign up for either a one-time or really especially a monthly uh, gift. Those are super helpful. Ken, mm -hmm. Kenny, thank yep. you again, gentlemen. Okay, we'll see you next Amen. week. Thanks, guys. Until then. Take care. Thank you.